0: In verse 57, Christ is arrested and led away not to Caiaphas' houses first, but to uh, Anas first. A-N-N-A-S. I looked up how to say that name, and uh, Anas is, is what I came up with. Or um, I, I don't think there's, I don't know if anyone has a, a better way to say it, but I think it's Anas. A-N-N-A-S. But what we see here, John actually gives uh, a different order of how things go. And kind of the difficulty between all four of the Gospels is they all give a slightly different account or they record different events of how Jesus is arrested and how the trial goes. So uh, here in a couple minutes, I am going to put in chronological order of how everything went. The trial, the beatings, and and who Christ stood before. But what we do know for certain is that Christ, uh, according to the Apostle John, went to uh, Annas' house first. Now, who is this man, Annas? Presumably, uh, Annas, he is the father-in-law, as we see in Scripture, of Caiaphas. Uh, some three years prior, when John the Baptist began his ministry, Luke records in uh, Luke 3.2 of Caiaphas and Annas both being the high priest. Now, what we know from the records is that, you know, two individuals are not high priest at the same time. But what we see is that the Romans had disposed of Annas some years prior. Perhaps about 15 A.D. was when the Romans took him down as high priest and they installed someone else. And uh, many of the Jews at this time still considered Annas to be the high priest. He was kind of the de facto guy still in charge. And MacArthur says in his commentaries that Annas was the high priest from about 6 A.D. to 15 A.D., so about a nine-year period. He was disposed, or deposed by the Romans, but listen to this, this still shows his power and his influence. Five of his sons, and then his son-in-law, attained the position of high priest. So that is why Christ, according to John, is sent to Annas' house first. And what we'll see is Annas and Caiaphas probably lived in a similar compound. So it wasn't like they had to go to one side of the city, then to another side of the city, to Caiaphas's house They probably lived in like a family compound, as we'll see here uh, later. But he was still de facto in control, so the Jewish leaders take him to Annas' house first. Uh, John 18 kind of sets up the whole entire situation here. And this is the note of the uh, New Geneva Study Bible, which I use. I'm going to go ahead and read this, and I think this sets up a great picture of uh, of what's going to happen here in the preceding verses. So this is just a description of Annas. And it says, one of the most influential Jewish leaders of that age, although deposed from the high priesthood by the Romans, he was still known by his title among the Jews. It is difficult to determine whether this verse in verses 19 to 24 represent one or two phases of a trial before the Jewish authorities. So we'll get into this here in a second. Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to an additional phase before the Sanhedrin. So judging from the description of rules for trials found in the Mishnah of some 200 years later, the proceedings here were marked by serious irregularities and violations of Jewish law. And as we'll see here, the Sanhedrin were not supposed to meet at night. The death penalty could not be declared on the day of trial. There was false evidence and false witnesses. And Jesus was exposed to blows from attendance during the trial. In addition to all of this, it was illegal for the Sanhedrin to meet for a capital case on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. These violations show that Jesus' condemnation by the Jewish authorities was a travesty of justice. So as we will see here, going through here, there are so many irregularities that these Jewish leaders bring out against Christ. It really shows their vendetta against Christ and how they really wanted to destroy our Lord and Savior. So we have verse here, 58 we turn again for away from Christ and we turn to Peter. Verse 58, But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So meanwhile, Peter follows Christ. Uh, Mark 14, 54 and John 18, 15. Kind of mind my jumping back and forth here. Like I said, in order to get a clear picture of, of what's going on here, we need to jump back and forth between the four Gospels. Peter is named uh, in... These two as a disciple who follows. Now John records in his gospel in John 18 that John is also following Jesus. And then what we have here in John 18, 15, and 16, I'll go ahead and read it. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. And that another disciple is, of course, uh, the apostle John. Now that disciple, that is John, was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, that is John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So we, hear, we see more details in other Gospels of verse 58. That not only was Peter there, but John was also there. Again, MacArthur in his commentaries says here that the word here can denote friend. That is, that the, the high priest knew John It may have been that John was an acquaintance of these individuals. And the reason we can say that is in the Gospel of John, he makes mention of Joseph of Arimathea and also in John 3 of Nicodemus. So the Apostle John could have actually been friends with some of these uh, people in the Sanhedrin. So he may have been well acquainted. So he was able to get inner access to this trial. And he was also able to ask permission to bring Peter in. So Peter here in verse 58 Follows him at a distance, but he is allowed into the high priest courtyard. And then uh, the end of verse 58, And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So Peter went in, warmed himself by the fire, as we'll see, and he wanted to see what was going to happen. And notice here, he sat at a distance. I think this, again, is alluding to verse 56, where all the disciples fled. Peter does not want to be acquainted with this Jesus at this time, as we'll see here of his three denials. And I've always kind of wondered, what happens to the other nine disciples? You know, we see that uh, Judas had betrayed, so there's only 11 disciples left. But what happens to the other nine disciples during this time? It's really not made known throughout the Gospels. We know John's there. We know Peter's there. But, you know, what happened to the other nine disciples? Where are they at? I think that's a mystery that maybe will only be answered once we're in heaven. And then we have uh, going down verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought... False uh, false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So we're going back. We went from Jesus to Peter. Now we're back at the uh, testimony of Jesus. Those who have Jesus are now trying to seek out uh, witnesses to bolster their case to put Christ to death. So kind of like any democratic society, you know, in order to bring charges against someone, you need witnesses. And what we have here is not only these witnesses, but they're seeking out false witnesses so they can try to destroy Christ. They try to find testimony, and none withstanding are found. Uh, Mark says in in his gospel that these witnesses and their testimonies did not agree with one another. So they had to be thrown out. So they're bringing all these witnesses forth, and it's all false testimony, and none of them really mesh together. In any civilized court, as soon as witnesses' testimonies... Don't mesh together. Usually the case is thrown out. But that's not what we see here. In verse 60, but they found none. And then uh, this goes to show the contempt and desperate desire the Jewish leaders had to destroy Christ. Let me read, going back to the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, let me read Deuteronomy 17.6, and this is about bearing false witness uh, against your neighbor. So, this is 17.6. This is how it's supposed to go. Deuteronomy 17.6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So, in a way, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are following it, but they're still lying. They want more than one witness, but the two witnesses they have are bearing false witness. They're not correct. And then... Later on in Deuteronomy 19.9, this is the penalty for lying about another witness. And then in uh, verse 19 of Deuteronomy, Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. So the penalty, according to the Old Testament law, for bearing false witness against someone, for lying in their trial, is to have the same penalty for what they were being tried as. So technically speaking, according to the law, these people who bore false witness against Christ, their penalty should have been death. Now, it may not have been physical death, but if they remain unrepentant, I can tell you it was most certainly eternal death. And justice was done eventually. But we see they're kind of following the law, but they have two false witnesses against Christ. And as we see, this is all purposely planned. All of this, according to the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders, this was all pre-planned to try to destroy Christ. Then going, uh, continuing to verse 60 to 61, uh, again, but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So where do we see where they get this information from? As we see in John 2, 19 to 22, we see what they're saying here. Yes, Christ said this, but they completely take it out of context in this trial so they can destroy Christ. And what does John say in, two, in chapter 2, 19 to 22? Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken so what Christ is saying here it is true he is going to destroy the temple and he is going to raise it up in 3 days but it wasn't the physical temple it was his bodily temple so what these witnesses here are saying is half truth yes he did say he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in 3 days but it wasn't the physical temple it was the temple it was the temple of God it was Jesus Christ body and continuing on in verses 62 and 63 and again if anyone has anything to add or comment please just raise your hand i know sometimes i plow ahead so if you have any comments or questions please raise your hand and stop me uh just shout out anyone have anything all right let's continue on yes certainly. Well, I think going along those lines, what's Satan do? He doesn't completely just come up with fallacies, 100% fallacies. He takes the truth and he twists it slightly. So, very very good point. And we see here in verses 62 and 63, and after Christ had, or after these witnesses had said this, the high priest in his rage, that is Caiaphas, arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent you know Christ is listening this whole debacle take place and up to this point he answers nothing to those who are accusing him first Peter 1 2 23 which is a great verse uh, to memorize let me read it here real quick as you can see I haven't memorized it although it is difficult to say stuff when you're presenting stuff in public it's always good to go back and read it yourself because the last thing you want to do is be in the middle of a verse and say, I completely forgot it. But here we have 1 Peter 2.23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So we see this verse of Peter being fulfilled actively in Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean he's not going to answer. We we will see he will answer, but it's not a reviling. It's not an accusatory. It's not a counter-offensive answer. And we see here, he suffered in silence. I think there is something incredibly powerful about silence. I remember uh, listening uh, to Rush Limbaugh one time on the radio. And he was kind of observing of, you know, uh, someone talking on the radio and people listening. One of the most powerful things he said is when you say something and then you don't say anything, you know, for five to ten seconds. You say a statement and then you don't say anything. You know, as, you're, as a listener, you think something's wrong. Like, what the heck's happening? You really, those next five to ten seconds, you really pay attention to see what that person's going to say next. And I think here, Christ, I think this is just enraging the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas. When you're not answering something, when, when you're accusing someone of something, when you're sitting there belittling them, and they don't say anything, I think that almost has a more powerful effect as if you responded. And I think that's what Christ is saying here. And him not responding, it's just building and fulfilling rage. in these Jewish leaders and the high priest, they want Christ to respond so bad so they can destroy him. But up to this point, he kept silent. And then continuing on in verse 63, And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. The high priest, then becoming agitated at Christ's lack of response, then puts him under oath to try and get a response from him. Uh, It appears from the narrative that they brought forward the witnesses to try and get Christ to slip up through his responses. The high priest then administers an oath so that he would respond. So again, Christ isn't responding because they wanted to trip him up. They wanted him to falsify himself under this trial so they could condemn him to death. But by him not responding is really making things difficult. So at last, a last-ditch attempt, what does the high priest do? He puts Christ under an oath to respond. And what do we see here? uh, Again, in verse 63, he says, he puts him under oath by the living God, that is, under God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He puts him under oath to say, Yes or no, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And now Christ finally responds. And what I'm going to do here is uh, there's two, uh, two of the Gospels cover his response. Uh, Matthew 26, as we see here, and then Mark also in his Gospel covers Christ's response to Caiaphas. So let me go ahead and read Matthew first, verse 64. This is Christ's response to Caiaphas after being put under oath. And the high priest, I'm sorry, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I will tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Christ responds. Before I uh, rebuttal to that, let me read Mark's statement here in Mark uh, 14, 61 to 62. But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus said, I am. I am who you say I am. And continue not. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We see uh, in Luke's gospel, he does not record this specific event. He records later on when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin. And uh, I won't go ahead and read that. And then John does not give an account of this time before Caiaphas. He only gives the account... Uh, of Annas uh, beforehand, but let me go ahead and read what Jesus is talking about coming in the clouds of glory. I think one of the most magnificent passages in all of Scripture is is Daniel seven, where Daniel is seated or uh, when he's when he's down and he looks up and he sees heaven open, and also uh, Stephen in Acts sees very similar. But let me go ahead and read what Christ is referring here to Daniel seven thirteen. I was watching in the night vision and behold. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So Christ, again, if you see, and we won't uh, turn there because of uh, time, but Stephen, when he is being stoned, he looks up into heaven, and he sees Christ standing at the right hand of God. That's a fulfillment of this, but I think this passage in uh, Daniel 7, 13, the Ancient of Days, I absolutely love that title for God. It just represents magnificence. But again, Christ here saying, I am, I am God. I am the one who is seated at the right hand of God. He is ascribing to himself right here, deity, that he is the son of God. Now, I said before that all four of the gospels give and don't give certain accounts of uh, Christ's trial. So what I will do here is uh, the examination of Jesus. So what I did is I went between all four gospels and I just didn't use my own head. I went to other commentators to list the exact steps of how Jesus' trial went. And uh, there is some difficulty because there's some gray area, but I think a general consensus here of how Christ's trials went. So we know, first of all, from the Gospels that he was arrested by the officers of uh, the temple guard. So then John 18, in his Gospel, he goes first to Annas, as we have established, the de facto High priest. Then, according to Mark and also to Matthew, after Annas, excuse me, Annas sends him to Caiaphas for trial. So, first Annas, then to Caiaphas. And then, after this trial uh, with Caiaphas, as we see here in Matthew, he is then beaten. And Luke records that in Luke 22 63. And Mark also records that in Mark uh, 14 65. Then, after that trial, there elapses a period of time. And then Luke records in his gospel, and also Mark, there's a morning trial before the Sanhedrin. So we have the pre-trial of Annas. Then we have the night trial of Caiaphas. And then there's Christ is beaten. Then there's a period of time. And then in the morning, about 6 o'clock it appears, the Sanhedrin all meet together. And they have another trial to Firmly put in place all of the accusations and what Christ has said. And then after that, they agree that they need to hand him over to the Roman authorities. Because if you remember this time period, obviously Israel was under Roman rule. They could not administer the death penalty. Only the Roman government was able to administer the death penalty. So the Jewish leaders come together. They uh, solidify the accusations. And then the next step in Luke 23.1 one. Christ is handed over to Pilate. So we see the Jewish leaders going and uh, accusing Christ. Then they hand him over to the Roman authorities. Then Pilate, this is the first trial of Pilate. He understands where Jesus is from. So he then takes Jesus, this first trial, and he hands him over to Herod. Because Herod was the Tetrarch of the area that Jesus was from, the Jewish ruler in that area. And we see Herod... You know, he doesn't do much with Christ. He looks at him, and what they do, they ridicule him, and they make fun of him, and they have contempt against him. And then Herod, saying, I don't know what to do with him, hands him back to Pilate for final trial and execution. We won't go into that. Uh, Dave will go into that next week when he begins chapter 27. So really we see here, just again, he goes to Annas first, then to Caiaphas, then Christ is beaten, then there's a morning trial at 6 o'clock, where he stands before all of the Sanhedrin, They agree that he needs to be put to death to administer the death penalty. They hand him over to Pilate. That is the Roman authorities. Pilate says, I don't really know what to do with him. He hands him over to Herod. Herod says, I don't know what to do with him. So then he hands him back to Pilate. And then we'll see that the Jewish leaders, you know, make their case of why Christ needs to be put to death. And finally, Pilate, as we'll see again in chapter 27, puts him to death. Now, uh, Verse 65, after Christ's response, the high priest, uh, they finally get what they want. Jesus confesses that he is the son of God. That's what they wanted all this time. They wanted Christ to confess that he is the son of God. Remember, there's uh, a couple of times uh, before this where in uh, John 8, where they ask him, you know, who are you? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And in that time period, the Jews actually tried to kill him but it says that Jesus went through their midst and basically disappeared. So again, they finally have Jesus in custody, and they finally admits again that he is the Son of God. That's all the proof that they need to be able to put him to death. And then uh, the high priest tears his clothes, which according to the Old Testament, he was not supposed to tear his clothes. He was supposed to be completely sanctified uh, before the Lord, even so much that they weren't even allowed to mourn Uh, for the death of relatives because their job was solely in in service to God. They couldn't even mourn. They couldn't tear their clothes. And uh, we again see that he really wasn't sad. Actually, this was uh, probably a joyous, jubilant tearing of his clothes because Christ finally admitted that he was the son of God, so they had all the reason to put him to death. Verse 66, uh, this is, again, a snap verdict. What do you think, he asked the other uh, Jews around him, What do you think? They answered and said, "He is deserving of death. He's deserving of death. They make the snap verdict that he is guilty of blasphemy and should be put to death. And what we saw in John 18:13 is that they weren't supposed to make this during the middle of the night, and especially before a holy day the next day. So all of this is completely out of the ordinary. All of this is illegal, but nonetheless, according to the will of God, this goes through so that Christ is eventually put to death. And then 67 and verse 68, as we see after he meets with Caiaphas, uh, they mock him and then they beat him. uh, Luke 22, 63 to 65, Luke says this, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesize, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Again, they're ridiculing and mocking Christ. I, I, as I was reading through the, the, uh, this week, I just couldn't help but continue to think just Christ holds their very next breath in his hand. But yet he willingly suffered under this humiliation. Time and again, not only here, but the crown of thorns, the beatings, the whippings, the humiliation on the cross. He did it for us, and I think that's a a very great reminder that as he's doing this, it's for us. He suffered this humiliation for us. So what should we not do for Christ? As we'll see here of Peter's denial, how many times do we deny Christ each and every day, Not, not actively per se, but even passively, by not proclaiming his name? And I think by reading these passages, what Christ is here doing, suffering under sinful men, he's doing it for us his love for his people, I think that really gives us an appreciation and an encouragement to suffer for Christ. Now, uh, before I go uh, quickly here to Peter's denial, anyone have any comments or questions? Man, I answered everyone's questions again. And uh, as as we continue on here now, Peter denies Jesus and weeps bitterly. Now th- this again is another not difficult, but all four Gospels give slightly different accounts of Peter's denial. What do they mean there by they said that he wept bitter? Well what, what happened to this? He wept. What's the bitter part? Uh where is that at? At the end of the 30 denying, either they lose the crow and turn. Yes, let me uh I- I'll get to that here in a second. Um, let me, uh, let me continue these, uh, first couple of verses here, Tom, and I think I'll try to address your, well, I think there's, there's kind of like a, there's like a deep sorrow. I mean, I think of Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, Luke records that he sweat drops of blood. I mean, it doesn't, you don't really need to, to show that or even to write that to be able to say that someone's sorrowful. But I think by inserting the word bitterly there, it really shows the distress that Peter was in once he realized he betrayed his Lord. Does that make sense? Um, so continuing on here, let me go ahead and read uh, John seventeen eight, 8. And uh, this is the note of the New American Standard Bible again. Uh, John, I'm sorry, John 18, 17. And uh, it says, The account of Peter's denial is interrupted in John's gospel by part of the trial proceedings. It would appear that there were three occasions of denial rather than three single sentences by Peter. This is what one would expect with a number of people coming and going and warming themselves by a fire. There may be different legitimate ways of distinguishing the occasions to yield the figure three predicted by Jesus in John thirteen thirty eight. All four Gospels agree that the first denial was in response to a question by a servant girl. In other words, a harmless person of no great importance in the household, so this isn't necessarily three sentences of Peter denying Christ. What we have to understand here is in this courtyard there was lots of people coming and going, uh, multiple servants and other individuals probably interested in this trial. So what the, uh, the commentators note here is that it was probably three occasions of Peter denying Christ. It may have been you know five or six sentences of, of denial, but three distinct occasions of uh, Peter denying Christ. Now I've also uh, compiled all four Gospels recording of Peter's denial. So let me just go ahead and read these real quick. I'll start with Matthew, obviously end in John and this is uh, the time frame of who Peter denied to and what his response was. So we see in Matthew uh, the first denial of all the gospels agreed that it was a servant girl. The servant girl asked Peter, "Do you know him? And what is Peter's response? I do not know what you're saying. First denial. Peter denies Christ. The second one in Matthew, another girl said to everyone around, isn't he the one that was with Jesus? And what does Peter say? I do not know the man. Second denial. And then lastly, those by the camp and the fire, they said, aren't you the one who knows Jesus? Aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And what does it say here in Matthew? Matthew. Peter cursed and swore and said, I do not know the man. So we see each step, he becomes more adamant in his denial of Christ until finally he administers an oath upon himself and he curses and he says, I do not know the man. He is adamant at this time, not once, not twice, but three times that he does not know Jesus. Mark 14, 66 to 72 records the denial of Peter. The first one again, he denies to the servant girl. And Peter says to her, after, his, after her question, neither know nor understand what you are saying. Peter's saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. The second time, Mark records that this second one is again a servant girl, perhaps the same one at a later time. The servant girl again said to those around her, is this not the one who was with Jesus? He denies again. And then the third time, according to the Gospel of Mark, those who stood by said, because he's Galilean, his uh, personal mannerisms, his uh, speech gave him away. It's like oftentimes we can tell someone who's from the Deep South. And then they try to say they're not from the Deep South. I don't think you get that accent from New York. And I think that's kind of what they're saying here is, you sound like a Galilean, and Jesus was a Galilean. You're saying you don't know him? And what uh, what does Peter do again? He cursed and swore and says, I do not know this man whom you are speaking of. All the evidence is here, but yet Peter denies yet again that he knows Christ. So again, these are three, uh, not sentences of denial, but three occasions. We see here in Luke 22, uh, 54 to 62, his recording of the uh, denial of of, of Peter. First, it was a servant girl. He says, woman, I do not know him. Then two, a man confronts Peter. So, probably in the same instance of the servant girl, they're probably around each other. They ask him, they ask him twice. Peter is confronted by a man the second time. He says, Man, I am not a disciple of Christ. And verse 3: Another IDs him from being a Galilean, as we saw in Mark. And what does Peter say? Man, I do not know what you're saying. He again denies. In John 18, uh, John splits it up in two different sections. First one is John 18, 15 to 18. And then the second two denials are verses 25 to 26. At first, again, the servant girl who lets Peter into the courtyard, asks him and saying, do you know Jesus? Peter says, I am not. I do not know. And then the second time uh, uh, recorded by uh, John is those by the fire. So perhaps the man and the servant, John just lumps them together says, do you know Jesus, or are you acquainted with him? And what does Peter say? I am not. And then lastly, John is the only one to record this individual, which this is kind of interesting. John records it in verse 26. Last person Peter denies to is the cousin of Malchus, who just a couple hours before, Peter had cut his ear off. So not only is this servant probably asking if, identifying if Peter's with Jesus, but this servant may have a vendetta against Peter, maybe to get revenge. So this is even more of a reason for Peter to deny his association with Christ because he is maybe concerned that this individual is seeking revenge against him. But Peter is questioned, and he denies it again. So as we see from all three Gospels, these three occasions, Peter has uh, fulfilled what Jesus had just said to him hours before. He denies Christ on three occasions you know, just think for yourself, you're Peter, how short-minded you are. Not that I wouldn't have been in that situation. I most certainly would have been. But Jesus had just told you hours before that you would deny me three times. And yet Peter, not even a thought of what Jesus had said during these three times, denies Christ three times. But on the last one, it says here in verse 75, And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. So after the third time, it hits Peter. Hits him right in the head, in the heart. And he remembers what his Lord had just told him hours before. You will deny me three times. And we see, as Tom had just said before, the travail and the regret and the remorse that Peter has. That not only does he go out and weep, but he weeps bitterly this is a deep dying or a deep-seated remorse of of peter for betraying his lord and one of the gospels i can't remember it off the top of my head it even said that jesus looked at peter when he had the third time when he had denied it so even not only remembering it but then the person who just denied three times looks over at you right in your eyes not only was jesus probably staring into his eyes but into his soul and Peter knew right then and there that what he had done was just denied his Lord and Savior. So real quick, with just a minute left, what can we take from this event of Peter, the fragility of man? Don't you think for one second that you're not in the same boat of Peter? When you think you're at your high saying, I will, not, I will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when Satan brings you down real quick. So what do we do? We need to pray and we need to meditate upon God and ask for his grace and for his strength, we need to watch and be vigilant. Unlike Peter here, unlike us so many times, we need to pray, we need to watch, and we need to be vigilant. And last of all, what's the greatest? What did Peter, or What did Jesus say to Peter just prior before? He said, Peter, I am praying for you. What can we take from this? Have confidence to know that Christ right now is praying for us. Peter's flame was very, very small. It looked like his faith was about to be extinguished, but that prayer from Christ preserved it. So he was able to continue on in his faith for Christ. Got done one minute early. If anyone has any comments or questions, you can see me afterwards. Thank you very much. And uh, Dave will be starting, I think, uh, chapter 27 next week. Thank you very much.